This reminds me of my first experience in radio. It was back in the early 80s. People with disability and mental health. There's always controversy with us. The mysteries of the mind and consciousness. And we might get to the bottom of something or we might start something new. We're going to run the gamut and we're going to have a good time. Waking Braves. No, not Waking Braves. We're Breaking Waves. Breaking Waves? Breaking Waves. Breaking Waves. Uh... Good evening, folks. You're listening to Breaking Waves. I'm Riley. And I'm John Mark. Today, we are bringing you a new show that is about AI, artificial intelligence. Yeah, we're continuing our um, ramblings uh, and discussions about telephones and all the technology surrounding telephones and how they've changed our lives which they've certainly done in lots of ways as we explored on our previous programs and today we're going to have a look at the idea of um, artificial machines or uh, man-made devices um, robots uh, programs that are clever in some way. We might talk a bit about uh, what intelligence actually means. Damn, we're going to get deep. So historically, the idea of artificial intelligence has been with us for a very long time. That's right, John. Uh, probably hundreds of years. The first uh, piece of fiction that's credited with portraying AI is an 18... 18- 72 novel by Samuel Butler called Ershorn and but as you say I mean it's probably been around yeah I'd say so, going back thousands of years the idea that somehow you can um, through wizardry witchcraft or which was you know the science of old you could uh, empower something with intelligence well um, think of uh, the Pinocchio story yeah, I can think of uh, lots of mythical things that uh, sort of fit into that mould. Um, certainly going back this century, you know, there was um, the idea of robots has been around with us for a while, mechanical sort of uh, mechanical beings which possess a consciousness of their own, which you've uh, um, is synonymous with the idea of intelligence. John, have you ever heard of Isaac Asimov? (laughs) Yeah, I've read a few of his books. Do you know about his three laws of robotics? Yes. Well, I know there are three, and one of them is don't kill humans, but I can't remember what the other ones are. Let's go through these laws. So the first law is a robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm. The second law is a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except when such orders will conflict with the first law. Third law, robot must protect its own existence as long as protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Yes, I remember the movie made, what was it made about 10 years ago? The remake of iRobot, or that had those... Uh, laws in it and all the robots went crazy and tried to kill everyone. (laughs) That Will Smith movie from 2004 wasn't a very good film, but I liked it when I was a kid. 
Yeah, my first memory of um, robots, of course, was the Swiss family Robinson lost in space, which had that iconic mechanical man. But uh, I think robots have been uh, appeared in films since the beginning of filmmaking. Yeah, and I think the most iconic early example would be Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which is this epic, silent German movie. Um, And I think my first exposure to the concept of uh, robots and AI and everything in movies, other than like kids shows and stuff, was really um, two of the biggest sci-fi movies of all time, which is The Matrix and Terminator. And I watched those. My dad showed me both of them when I was a kid, and um, I loved those movies, especially Terminator and especially Terminator 2, that whole... um, Because I don't think... I think I was younger when I watched The Matrix and I didn't really comprehend the AI aspect so much in that because it's a bit more... The machines are a bit more separated. And they're kind of breaking the golden rules, aren't they? (laughs) Majorly. (laughs) Um, Terminator is certainly not serving... uh, Serving mankind as... They're revolting. They're rising up. And I remember being in primary school and getting presented with stories about advances in technology and nanotechnology and all this kind of stuff and thinking, wow, Terminator is going to become real. It's going to come true. We're going to have these things developing sentience and trying to like take over and all this stuff so my imagination had been uh informed by fiction and then i was kind of imposing that uh view upon reality so it seems that the earlier depictions of robots were far less human right john yeah, they look kind of like these lumbering um bulldozer like machines with sort of heads and arms that would sort of uh, do stuff, even I think in the Forbidden Planet, that although mm. that uh, robot was quite clever and could do all sorts of things, he was quite mechanical in his responses. Yeah. And um, the big standout for me is the robot in Space Family Robinson because it used to cry and wail because, of course, Dr. Smith was very mean to it. <laughs> he used yeah. to <laughs> call it all kinds of names. And so it was a very human-like character. Mm. The... Um the robots of old, like if you watch old black and white 1930s serials like uh, Flash Gordon or Buck Rogers or something, they're going to not really have that level of sentience uh, normally. So, um, and I think uh, one of my favorite movies as a kid was that movie AI. Um, which came out in 2001, which Steven Spielberg directed it based on a project that Stanley Kubrick started and he didn't get to finish. And that's based on a science fiction, uh, I suppose, book of um, short stories by Brian Aldiss called Super Toys Last All Summer Long. And the robot boy in that, have you seen the film, John? Yes, it's uh, he. It's kind of a retelling of the Pinocchio story because this robot boy, he gets developed to replace uh, the son of this family, but then they decide they don't want him. He gets abandoned, but he has this quest that he wants to be a real boy, and so he's got a real. Dri- he's got emotion. He has this driving force of uh, motivation and desire and everything. So um, definitely. 
And in fact, in that story, that the fact that he can cry and feel pain and all this stuff is what sets him apart from the other robot characters in in the in the piece. Yeah, they're kind of like these functional devices, really. A lot of depictions of of robots, and they kind of looked sort of like creatures, but they were definitely mechanical sort of looking beings. I think the the current idea of uh, AI is kind of um, actually um, etheric. It's sort of an entity that doesn't really even have to have a body, does it? It's just this thing out there that's smart, that's uh, possibly intelligent, possibly self-aware. Well, that brings us back to the internet idea because we're living in the Wi-Fi cordless generation, you know, so... Why have something of nuts and bolts when it's all just there for you on the screen? And I guess this speaks to the um, the development of the computer because there have been computers for a, a very long time. Famously, Charles Babbage invented a machine in the 1800s uh, called the... Uh, uh, some kind of, I can't remember what it was called now, some kind of analytical machine, but it was uh, based on, um, uh, it wasn't binary, uh, it was a mathematical, but it was all mechanical, it had gears and levers and pulleys, and um, the first programmers of computer code actually started way back in those, those days. In fact, when I was at uni, I learnt a language called Ada, which is named after Ada Lovelace, the daughter of Charles Babbage, who um, famously was one of the first computer programmers uh, way, way before there were computers, what we call a computer now. It's something that works in a binary uh, digital um, platform. Babbage, huh? Babbage, yeah. Um, Neil Stevenson, a postmodern sci-fi writer, one of my favourites, uh, wrote a book called The Difference Engine, which was uh, had Babbage in it, and I think it had Ada, Lo- Ada Lovelace and um, was based back in the, the turn of the 1900s. And in fact, the um, of course, governments have always had a, a great interest in uh, calculating machines and... Uh, computers before the current age were actually people. It was a term used for people that sat down with um, and did equations on bits of paper. And I'm sure everybody's seen the um, recreations of the data centres during the Second World War full of, um, I think, largely women sitting at tables um, with headphones on trying to, you know, um, deal with all of this data and yeah. computations. <laughs> of course, now uh, the computations are not done by people. They're done by processes that have uh, built-in functionality. Um, Let, let's talk about that because um, I remember there was a certain point, and I've talked about this on the show many a couple of times before, but uh, there was a certain point when um, the text, the predictive text in mobile phones collectively seemed to really go downhill. And I remember talking to you about it and you're saying, well, that's the AI. You know, that's, it's not so smart, is it? Um, but 
Yeah, oh, my experience at predictive text is it never worked. I'm very frustrated. I had um, I had a phone that would keep going into predictive text mode. It really drove me crazy. That's why I got rid of it in the end. Uh, this is back in the old clam clamshell days. But yeah, not 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 fond of predictive text. Does it work any better now? Well, as I was saying, like when I first got a smartphone, um, less than a decade ago, it was quite useful for me because I struggle with with spelling and there was, I found a lot of utility within it. But what it became, it there was a certain point when it changed. I think around within the last like five years or so, it became useless. It, it suddenly it was like suddenly it forgot a whole bunch of words or it didn't seem to really intuit, you know, things that I would be writing. And I remember talking to other people at this time saying they were having the same thing where they feel like the predictive text had suddenly uh, let them down. So... Well, this is interesting because um, more recently the idea of uh, distributed computing has um, come to the front and by this I mean the cloud. You're basically connected to... Um, all these resources and they do all the, th- the calculating and thinking and supplying of data rather than having it all done on the actual phone itself. Although phones are quite powerful, their main function is to connect you to the feed and to all of these resources out there, uh, out there in the ether, in the cyberspace. So what are some of the implications of the propagation of AI for our lives and for our society because a lot of people have been talking about this uh, chat GBT, for example, that came out late last year and, you know, people can feed it all this data and information and get it to write essays. It can get it to mimic the writing style of particular authors and things like that. So um, how do you think... I mean, maybe we should save that for the end because that's, like, a very current development but but i guess it's already ch- been changing our lives this removal of the the personal aspect we've we've talked a lot um about how frustrating it is that a lot of the time when you call up some kind of uh government institution in particular or a corporation whatever it might be a mass a chain a big business or whatever it it's very difficult to be able to talk to a person. You'll get into this kind of these automated messages on the phone that will tell you to press numbers. And it's such a frustrating thing because, you know, they want people to do everything online and it doesn't really acknowledge someone who's not online, whether it's an old person or a computer illiterate person. Um, they're just, uh, you know. Well, it should actually be a. Um it should be a positive thing <laughs> to have an automated system. Uh, but in fact, it seems to be employed as a sort of a firewall um, and a way of uh, dealing with people without actually having to deal with the people. Uh, so, yeah, it is a bit like that. And I'm incredibly frustrated to the point of being uh, traumatised, <laughs> ringing uh, certain uh, entities and organisations yeah, yeah. and corporations and trying to deal with them, you know, banks and um, governments, uh, departments are some of the worst uh, with these phone systems that are not 
they're frustratingly stupid and they send you round and round in circles and then hang up on you. So, yeah, yeah this is not a progress. <laughs> this is a great example of technology being used as a... Mm. A buffer. Yeah, not to enhance our lives. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, back in the day, like, it was considered a necessity, for, you know, to be able to, like, interact with someone, right? With a person... Who can like? Man, you know. not so long ago, businesses answered their phones, and if they didn't answer their phones, they went out of business. It was kind of integral to running a business was to be in the phone book, so people could find you, and to answer the phone so you could sell, do your business basically. And this that world's gone. You order something now on Uber Eats. It doesn't arrive and you try and ring the restaurant up where it came from and they won't answer their phone. <laughs> yeah, try and ring the, the driver as well. I um I had a really frustrating experience with um, Uber recently actually where I was trying to order an Uber and I was in a hurry and I wanted to punch in the address but the app wasn't letting me do that without turning on my location, right? And... I kept trying and then eventually I was like, well, screw it. I'm just going to put on the location. And then even though I, after that, it let me type in the address that I wanted to be picked up from. But because it had this location thing on and the location thing, you know, registered me as being somewhere else to the address that I typed in, it had me in a different street. That's where the driver went. And, you know, I was trying to call him up. I was messaging him and I was saying, just come to the address that I've written, you know, but um, I couldn't get a hold of him. And I thought, that's it. I'm deleting Uber. You know, they they are forcing a person to use their technology that's actually impeding the outcome that the customer wants. Like, that's not, you know, a product that I'm interested in using in spite of its, like, utility and convenience a lot of the time, but just things like that. I mean, who knows? I'll probably end up getting it again in some kind of emergency or something but um yeah stuff like that just really drives me crazy sticks in my craw this might be a good time for us to play some robot related music for you this is from uh 1976 77 it was close <laughs> and this is from an artist uh producer named alan parsons and it's called I wouldn't want to be like you.
Project with I Wouldn't Want to Be Like You from the 1977 album iRobot. So the idea of uh, intelligence, Riley, what, what do you think they're getting at when they're calling these um, devices uh, and entities um, artificial intelligence? Do they actually mean intelligent like a person, like a human, do you think? Um, well, it depends on who's saying it and how they frame it. Yeah, what kinds of worries me is it seems to uh, be watering down the meaning of the word or making it quite confusing for people, uh, using the word intelligence for things that don't really fit the the description of something which is um, intelligent in the way a human is, and by that I mean uh, self-aware um. You're listening to Breaking Waves, by the way, folks. Riley and John talking about AI. Um, so the question is, like, could an artificial intelligence ever develop a kind of intelligence to equal, to rival that of a human and... There's uh, conflicting points of view on this. Well, how do you define uh, something that's intelligent? Well, how do you define human intelligence? Really, I think I go back to Alan Turing. He was a, um, a mathematician, um, uh, a very infamous uh, persecuted gay person. I think he actually committed suicide. I've not too sure. I, <laughs> I think he might have. Um, he was certainly made very miserable. There's been a movie made about him and his persecution. Yeah, well, they chemically castrated him. Right, and I've done that to a lot of people uh, over the years. But uh, Turing um, came up with a very simple test, um, and it's basically you set up a um, people to communicate with this intelligence and you set it up in a very controlled way so that the person doesn't know whether they're speaking to a human or not. And you do it via a, you know, a keyboard or um, a microphone. And if that person can have a conversation with the entity and uh, not really be able to tell that it's not a person, that is, you know, I guess it has to be free-flowing and we just have a sense. <laughs> um, and it was this, uh, this intuition that Turing was using in this uh, Turing test, it's called. Now, the sophistication of the automated systems they have now, depending on the topic you were talking about, could certainly uh, fool uh, a large number of people into thinking that they were talking to uh, a person sitting somewhere answering their questions. Um, but this is probably more more about the power of the information systems we've built, the sophistication of, of their ability to um, analyse um, input and respond. So maybe we've reached a time where the, we need something a lot better than the Turing test to uh, clarify. And what they've found as well... Um, 
or what I've heard about like um, the chat GBT is that um, if someone is trying to get like, shall we say, factual information out of it, it can it will just like invent stuff that sounds like it could be true when it doesn't know something. Yeah, I can see a great use for this, um, whether or not you think it's uh, actually intelligent or not. I can see how it's going to be used a whole lot in a whole lot of different areas, um, perhaps in medicine and people's uh, self-diagnosis or aided self-diagnosis. These kinds of systems could be quite useful. But in any area, really, it's really... um, more a library or a database of information that you can access and communicate with in a human-like way. As opposed to a human intelligence that we've created. Yes. I don't think we've been able to do that. Uh, just in the same way we've never been able, to, uh, been able to create life in a laboratory from... Um, uh, beakers of chemicals um, and bolts of lightning. Frankenstein. Yeah. Frankenstein is perhaps an, a sci-fi as well. Well, Darwin alluded to the same process for the origin of life. Um, interesting, his book was called Origin of the Species, but it didn't actually get down to brass tacks on what the origin actually was. Just referred to warm ponds of gooey stuff uh, springing forth life. We've come to the end of the program now, folks. Um, We hope you've enjoyed it, and we don't know when we'll be back, but it could be real soon. Adios, amigos. Bye for now.